Well, thank you, choir. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James chapter 3. James chapter 3 this morning is where we're going to be. We're going to look at a few other passages until uh, a little bit before we get there, but James 3 is where you can camp out as we uh, look at a second message in a series entitled Words. We started this series last Sunday, and uh, just give you a little bit of a a little backdrop as to how we kind of came to this place. You know, whenever we finish a series, as we're aiming towards the next series, I like to pray, obviously, as to what God would have us to focus on. Sometimes we'll go into a topical series. Other times we'll go through a book, you know, like with the book of Acts here most recently. And, uh, you know, I just kind of felt a sense of, of wanting to go through a, just a, a, series of mes- a series of messages where we can just encourage and look at what God's Word has to say about the need for encouragement in our lives and to be encouragements to one another. There are a lot of passages in Scripture that are, that are the one another passages that talk about love one another, encourage one another, and encourage one another daily. And so I was thinking along those lines, and as I began to kind of jot some things out and put things together, you know, I thought, you know, that's, it's going to be hard to do a series on encouragement and look at something fresh and brand new, you know, over, over the course of a number of weeks. And I began to kind of think through uh, how we use our words, not just to encourage, but ways that we can use our words to build up and also ways that we use our words to a negative, uh, uh, to, in a negative way as well. And so we put together this series entitled Words, looking at positive ways as well as negative ways that we can either use our words to be a blessing or in many ways, as Scripture would literally say, to be a curse to another person. And so this is the second week. If you weren't here last Sunday, you can access the first message uh, uh, in the series on our website. And uh, it's on there. You can listen to it. It's about a half an hour long. And uh, it'll give you a good little foundation for what we're going to be looking through over the course of these next few weeks. Now, here's the tendency. The tendency may be to say, you know, why don't we look at a fluffy series like this, something you know, on words? You know, what, what's, what's the big deal? It's not that big a deal for us to devote you know, five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks uh, to something like this. Well, it is a big deal. And if we, were, if we remember what we looked at last Sunday, specifically, there's a passage of Scripture in James chapter 1. It's in verse 26. You don't have to turn there. But James 1.26 tells us that if anyone thinks he's righteous or thinks that he is religious, but does not use his words in a way that builds up, but rather, as we summarized last week, breaks down instead. If anyone thinks he's religious, but does not bridle his own tongue, his religion is worthless, James says. And that puts a lot of emphasis on the need for us to validate our relationships with God through the words that we speak. I'd be willing to say for some of you, you know people in your circle of influence. It may be at the gym, it may be in the, in the workplace, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe in your family. <laughs> and they, they speak a good word, you know, they speak a good, they, they talk good talk about where they are in relationship to God, and they talk about being in church all the time, but you know them uh, Monday through Saturday, and you hear the words they say, you hear the way they speak to others, you hear the way they treat others, you hear some of the stuff that comes out of their mouth, and you have serious questions about the validity of their relationship with God. Why? Because of the way they speak, and it's exactly what James says. Proverbs tells us that, that the power of life and death are in the tongue. And so the way we summarized all that last week was that you have the potential every single day, every moment of every day, to either build up others or to break down others through the words that you choose to use. And the choice is completely up to you. And so that's what we looked at last Sunday. We looked at some specific takeaways, some specific tips as to how we can do that. And I challenge you through the course of this week to, to be a, a hero of encouragement. Right? And how you could focus on seeking to be an encouragement to those around you, whether it's your family or whether it's your friends, acquaintances that you meet. We talked about being an encouragement to others, being focused and being sensitive to the needs of people around you. Uh, scripture tells us 
to let no unwholesome word proceed from our mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of that moment, so that it might give grace to those who hear it. And so this week, hopefully, you've been able to use your words to impart grace, to be a blessing, to be an encouragement to those people around you. So we, took, we sent you away last Sunday with that focus, to seek to be a hero of encouragement. We talked about uh, uh, translating before you communicate. Translate before you communicate. In other words, think through, how are my words going to be heard by the people I speak to? And just thinking through what I'm about to say, am I going to say it in anger? Am I going to be saying it in frustration? And is it going to come out in a way that I never intended? And so translating it between our ears before our words come out uh, from our mouth so that we can ensure that they build up instead of breaking down in a way that's not necessary. And then we talked about letting your praise outweigh your correction. A lot of us are really good at correcting, aren't we? Whether it's children or people that are close to us, we like to point out the flaws of other people. And we forget that we, have a prior, we should place a priority. We have a mandate to be an encouragement. And we rarely praise, and yet we're so quick to correct. And so we need to let our praise outweigh our correction. A good rule of thumb is three to one, four to one, to praise more than you correct so that your correction will be heard and it will make a difference. And so that's all what all, what all we packed uh, or unpacked last Sunday and the first message dealing with this series entitled Words. Today I want us to look in James chapter 3 is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. And the title for the message this morning is simply Hurtful Words. Hurtful Words out of the book of James chapter 3. You heard nursery rhymes, didn't you, when you were kids? You learned them. Some of you are passing them along now to kids and grandkids. One of those simple nursery rhymes was, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. It's one of the biggest lies that has ever been taught to the youngest in our society, that words will never hurt me. And the, way we, the reason we teach that is because we want our kids to understand that words don't define who we are, but they do, don't they? For many people, words do define. In fact, I would say in this building this morning, all from, from every row front to back, every seat left to right, you are a product, to some degree at least, of the words of those around you. You are a product of your parents, the words they spoke to you. You are a product of those who have been a part of your circle of influence as friends from your growing up years, through your teen years, and even in, into your adult years. You are a product of the words of other people. And words make an impact. Words oftentimes are, are, are inspiring. They build us up and they encourage. But many, many times, the words of others break us down. They tear us down. Not so much seeking to correct us, but they just want to berate us and they, and they, they seek to, to uh, harm us and to hurt us. Words hurt, they sting, but words also can harm to where once the, once the sting is gone, they can redefine the person who hears them. I remember a number of years ago, uh, I was uh, out fishing with my brother-in-law, Susie's brother, and I think I shared this story once a few years ago. We were, we were out fishing on a little pond and just tearing it up. I mean, we were catching fish left to right, and uh, in this pond were a lot of, um, lot of stumps, a lot of, lot of tree limbs, a lot of bushes, and in those bushes were wasp nests. And uh, we were in this little boat with an electric motor, and I was at the front of the boat, and Susie's brother was uh, kind of directing it from the back with the trolling motor, and we were out fishing, just not even really paying attention. And, and it, that boat eased up into a wasp nest, and man, those things lit me up. I had at least, I counted, I had 12 different wasp stings, at least. And uh, I would have won $10,000 off America's Funniest Home Videos if, if they'd been able to film that. I was swinging my hat and just everything I could do from just jumping in and impaling myself on some cypress, you know, and he's sticking up. And uh, uh, it, it, was, it, was, 
it was a learning lesson for me. Number one, don't ever fish with Susie's brother anymore when he's driving the boat. But number two, it reminds me in a series like this that, you know, once that sting takes place, if you've ever been stung by a wasp, yes, it hurts. But man, it continues to hurt and it gets worse over the course of the next 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. That, it's as though that poison just spreads its way through your body. And, uh, and it begins to, to intensify. It gets worse from the initial moment. That's often the way negative words work in the lives of people. They sting at the moment. But it's through the, the remaining uh, uh, days and weeks and months as we ponder the words of others and as we perhaps even begin to define ourselves by their words, the poison begins to soak through our lives. And the interesting thing is that Scripture has a lot to say about this, specifically in the book of James chapter 3. And so let's pick up here. Beginning in James chapter 3, we're going to jump down, beginning in verse 5. And the, the key word here is going to be the key word tongue. And it's speaking of the, the words that we speak. It's going to be very obvious. The words that we speak to the lives of others. And so for you, perhaps this will have specific impact because you, to a degree, have been hurt by the words of others. And so James chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, says, So also the tongue is a small part of the body. And yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. Now let me just stop there for just a moment. When James begins to say the things he's going to say here coming up, it's going to be in regards to the way we use our words in a negative way. He is not slamming the way God has created us. God created us with the capacity for human speech. He gave us the hardware that's required. He created us in such a way to be able to communicate. He is not questioning the way God made us. What James is doing here is that he is dealing with the negative impacts of the words that we, the negative impact of the words we speak. And so that's what he's saying here. Again, verse 6, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body, and it sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. So what James is doing here, the whole tone of this, is that James is, it's almost as though he's scratching his head while he's writing out this letter. James is questioning, he's asking, uh, as he examines the incomprehensible nature of the members of the body of Christ, those who've been saved by God, those who have turned from their sin, given their lives to Jesus Christ, those that have been transformed and changed by God's grace. He, he's scratching his head and, and seeing the incomprehensible nature of how can a person who has a relationship with the God of the whole universe, who's yielded their lives to follow Jesus, a man who is sinless and perfect, who's been transformed by God's grace on a daily basis, how in the world can those people use their speech and their language and their words to bring such damage to the lives of other people who have also been created in the image of God? And so let's just kind of walk through a little bit of this passage. Look, look, look down again in verse, look down in verse 11. He uses three examples here. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? The answer is no. Can a fig tree produce olives or vine produce figs? No. Neither can salt water produce fresh. And what James is saying here is that 
that it is mind-boggling how a, how a person who knows Christ, who's been shaped by God's righteousness, even having that righteousness applied to their own life, can live and behave in such a way to where their words seem to invalidate everything they are because of how hurtful those words are. Look at what, he, look at what else he says here in this passage. Look in verse 6. He, he describes the tongue. He describes it in very, very, very accurate, accurate ways when it's at its worst. He says the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. Have you ever been lit up by someone? I mean, just lit up in a hallway maybe at work maybe across a desk from someone who's in authority over you in the workplace, maybe from a family member, maybe in one of those, um, one of those um, uh, discussions as a husband and as a wife, yeah, kind of heated. Yeah, we don't like to use the words they are. Well, we, we had an adult conversation. <laughs> uh, no, 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 that's not what that was. We had a, a, a heated discussion. No, that's not what that was. James is pointing that out. He says it is a fire when it's at its worst. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. Have you ever had your whole day shaped by something that someone said to you earlier that morning? Yeah. And you know what? For most of us, there's probably been a time where we shaped someone's day by something we said to them earlier in the morning. He says here... That it is not only a fire, but it defiles the entire body, sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell itself. Now, when James would have penned those words, he used an interesting word called Gehenna. Jesus would have used that word to describe We translate it as hell. Jesus would have used that word Gehenna back in the Gospels when he walked the earth, before James would have wrote this letter. Jesus would use the word Gehenna to describe hell. It was a word picture. Everyone who heard this word in the first century, in the Jerusalem area at least, would have understood what Gehenna was. Uh, Gehenna was a, it was the valley of Hinnom, which was southwest of, of Jerusalem, outside the city gate, outside the city wall there. And in the valley of Hinnom there, Gehenna, it was, a, it was the city dump, is what it was. And the garbage and the refuse of that city, the city of Jerusalem, would have been taken there to that valley, and it would have been burned there. And, and scholars say that there in the valley of Hinnom at Gehenna, that that city dump burned 24-7. There was always something being burned in the valley of Hinnom, in Gehenna. And so whenever Jesus in the Gospels would have made mention of the place of hell, and he would have described it in very literal terms, that it was a literal place outside the city gate, so to speak, outside of a relationship with God, a place of burning, a place of torment. He would, have, he would have used the word Gehenna to describe that. And everyone in Jerusalem, this Jewish audience, would have understood, oh, that's what hell is like. It's, it's like this, this burning heap of refuse that burns 24-7 without a day off. That's what it's like. That's, that's the way Jesus would have used the word Gehenna. So when James is writing to describe the tongue, our language, our speech at its worst, he pulls that same word out of the vocabulary. And he says, this is what it's like. The tongue at its worst is set on fire by hell itself. He's very clear on the, the harm that can come when we don't use our words properly. Look at verse 9. He says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. You know, it is the utmost hypocrisy for us, and I include myself in this, for us to bless God on Sundays and then pay no heed to the words we use Monday through Saturday as we speak to others. 
Again, is there a place for correction in the lives of other people? Absolutely. Is there a place for rebuke? Absolutely. Scripture speaks of that. We'll look at that later in this series. Is there a place for us to speak truth into the lives of others that may sting, but for the purpose of building them up eventually? Yes, there is. But needless, senseless, tossing out words to do nothing but to berate, to beat down, to harm, to hurt, to define, and to, to bring pain to another person for no cause whatsoever except for our own gratification the bible says much about that and one of the things that it tells us is that it has the potential to bring even into question our very walks with god himself well there are two perspectives this morning that i want us to look at this from the perspective of the first are those who have been wounded by the words of others last sunday i asked you if you've ever if you remember the words that someone's spoken to you that is that still rings in your ears today hands went up all over this place so I want to speak to those that have been wounded, see what Scripture has to say about that. But I also want to take a few moments this morning in the 15 minutes or so that I've got left to speak briefly to those who actually wound with their words. So let's, let's take a moment to look at those who have been wounded. There's a principle I want you to jot down that I hope you'll take away with you this morning. We can go ahead and bring it up on the slide now. The principle is this, that for those who have been wounded by the words of others, you need to be certain to define yourself by what God says of you, by God's view about you, and not by the words of others. And that is a process that takes place. That is a process that takes place over time where you constantly must evaluate the words of others about you, the words of others that speak hurt into your life. You have to evaluate their words, (laughs) their lies, and replace it with the word of God, with the truth of what God says about you if you belong to him. For some of you, this has gone on for years in your life. You were raised in a culture, and this is foreign to me because I wasn't raised in this culture, but you were raised in an environment where whether from a parent or whether from a a, a brother or sister or someone in your family, it was nothing but negativity. It was nothing but being beat down. It was nothing but sheer verbal abuse. And for you, it, it started from early on. For some, it may be in a marriage where year after year, it's been just a constant fighting and arguing and bickering and, and verbal assaults one to the other, back and forth, that begun, begins to shape you for who you are and your self-worth slowly being squeezed out of you, your value slowly being squeezed out of you. And you have to come to the place where, as that happened over time, you have to take the time uh, uh, to begin to replace those lies with the truth of what God says about you specifically. You have to define yourself by God's view. Now, now let, me just, let me just give a quick little illustration. I'm going to steal this from Dave Ramsey for just a moment. Uh, let's bring the slide up. How many of you recognize this picture here? Okay, you recognize that? All right, you say, if you recognize the picture, let me see your hands because there are some. Okay, good. This is not the student service. So there are some that might not recognize it. These are the Beverly Hillbillies. You got the back there. Uh, let me look at your direction. The back right, Granny. Back left, uh, Ellie Mae. You got Jed in the pastor seat and, and Jethro riding... Uh, you know, uh, driving, driving the buggy. I don't remember the dog's name. I can't remember. What was the dog's name? Duke? Duke? All right, that's good. Wow, that's impressive. That was good, Michael. That's awesome. Let's just pray and close this out. <laughs> it's like a miracle there. Um, so these are the Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, th- this came out in 1962, by the way. It rained for nine years till 1971. Yeah, I was shaped by the Beverly Hillbillies. I remember them. We'd watch them, you know, consistently, whether whenever I was a kid or later on in reruns. And uh, you know, they had a little song that came along with the Beverly Hillbillies, right? Can we just take a moment to be a choir? All right, we're just going to be a little choir here, and this is going to go somewhere. Again, I stole this from Dave Ramsey just, just recently on a video that I saw. So what was the opening song? 
Come and listen to a story about a man named Poor Mountaineer, barely. Then one day he was and up through the ground. Okay, there you go. That's good. All right, y'all are awesome. It's a, it's good. Give yourselves a hand. That was really good. Y'all are um, y'all y'all really need to get a life. Uh, I think is what, I, what what I might have to say about that. You know that that movie that, that show was out in the '60s, right? It finished running in the '70s, and probably it's been a few years since you've seen it. I hope. <laughs> I really hope you're not bringing that up weekly, you know, Netflix or somewhere, watching this still. It's been a while, and yet what? The, the song still sticks in your mind after all these years, for some maybe even decades. And you still remember the words of that song that means nothing, it still rattles around, and yet for others here, there is a different song that rattles around, and it doesn't stay just in your mind, it has made its way down to the recesses of your heart, to where you have defined yourself by the words of others, and what you need to do, and what you have to do, what you must do, what God would desire you to do, is to begin defining your life, not by what others have said about you, but to define your life by what God says about you, who counted you so valuable that he died for you in your place he took your place on a cross that was the ugliest form of execution in its day and he did that because your life is that valuable to him you have to redefine yourself based on what God says about you not what others say about you and so there are some tips I think that can help us to do that they're not on the overhead but they can I'll just toss them out I'll move slowly and you may want to jot these down just some things that can help you to do that. Number one, as I said earlier, you just got to replace the lies with God's truth. L- listen to what it says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Speaking to the Christian, speaking to the believer, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light max lucato says if god had a fridge your picture would be on it that's how he feels about you what a great picture that is does that sound kind of fluffy yeah it does but you know is it true probably so that's the way god views you god loves you and he loves you deeply and he loves you consistently and he loves you to the very end in fact for those who belong to him there is no end to his love he will constantly lavish it upon you both in this life and in the one to come and everything that comes that's difficult in nature he uses it for your good to mold and shape and conform you into the image of christ why because he is committed to you and every challenge you face he's going to walk with you through it and everything that comes in your life that you didn't see coming he knew about it and he's going to many times prepare you in advance and walk with you faithfully even through the valley of the shadow of death the psalmist says he will be faithful to want with you why because of the great value that you carry as a child of God himself and so you got to replace the lies of God with God's truth number two you need to set boundaries set boundaries to what is acceptable in regards to the way others speak to you set boundaries into what's acceptable and then respond accordingly and I don't know how that unpacks for you It may be a heart-to-heart conversation where you sit down with your spouse or where you sit down with that friend who has a way of just poking fun at you, but it seems like it's more than just poking fun. And it's a conversation where you just sit down and you you just have that heart-to-heart, honest talk and just say, you know what, your words, 
may not be intended for any harm, but to me, I don't appreciate some of the things that you've said. And you do it in a right way, and you do it in love, and you do it with a way that's redemptive in nature to help them, not hurt them, but you just have that honest response, and you set those boundaries. And if the boundary means remove yourself from that friendship, not the marriage, but from the friendship, if that boundary means you have that heart-to-heart conversation, whatever the boundary is, you may need to set that. And respond accordingly so that you don't continue to put yourself back in that environment where you continue to be beat down consistently. Number three, I would say to forgive the one who wounds you. You know, we can define ourselves by God's truth and we can put ourselves and remove ourselves from certain situations, friendships, uh, uh, work environments, e- even to where we're not being beat down uh, for no reason whatsoever. We can, we can do all that but still hang on to unforgiveness and bitterness and be just as poorly off as if we were as we were before you know unforgiveness um it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die (laughs) that's the way unforgiveness works you know i can't believe you'd say this to me (laughs) you know down goes the poison and you wait for them to be affected by it it doesn't work that way unforgiveness will only affect the one who holds it and so if you've been shaped negatively by the words of others it will be worth your while to not only set in place the right boundaries not only define yourself by god's truth in your life but seek to forgive and to be set free from bitterness that's going to come as a result and so for those that have been wounded define yourself by god's view of you not by the words of other people let me speak just for a moment to those who wound with words you know you may be one of those and your heart may be just as good as anybody else here but you just have a difficult time taming your tongue you have a difficult time being able to deal with the frustration that comes in your life. And by the way, frustration is going to come. It doesn't matter whether you're Christian or not Christian. Frustrating times come. Times that will make you angry are going to come. You live in a fallen world, and fallen worlds filled with fallen people tend to make other people aggravated. And so you're going to deal with frustration throughout the course of your Christian life. What you do with it makes all the difference in the world. And so for you, you may be one of those. You love God, and you're a Christian, and you have a deep desire to honor God with your life. But this is an area of your life that you've not been able to get a handle on, and you consistently feel feel so guilty over the way you speak to other people, and you've tried to do your best, and yet you cannot seemingly get a rein on your tongue. And then there are others who just simply find delight in wounding others well there's a simple principle that i think i that i that that i think can apply for those who wound with their words and the principle is this is that for those who wound with their words have to understand the relation between your words and your heart you have to understand the relation between your words and your heart and there is one so flip over with me to matthew chapter 12 i want you to see something here matthew Chapter 12, out of the words of Christ himself, Matthew captures the words of Jesus here during his earthly ministry. And what he says may be a bit shocking for some this morning, but listen to what he says. Matthew chapter 12, when you get there, move down to verse 33. We're looking at that simple principle of the relationship between our words and our heart. Matthew 12, verse 33. Jesus is speaking. He says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he says to the, to the uh, hypocritical religious leaders of his day. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? You know, Jesus really held back, didn't he, a lot of times in his ministry. <laughs> How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. 
The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That is sobering. Those last two verses, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they'll give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. Jesus is not saying by your words, you are declared justified. He is not saying that by our words, we are either saved or we are not saved. He is saying by our words, it will be revealed whether we are justified with God or not. In other words, our words are that powerful that they have even the capacity to reveal whether we have a relationship with God or whether we don't. Now, I'm not saying it's that one time out of, you know, out of, out of a, a whole year where you lost your cool and you popped off at somebody and oh, God convicted you and, and you, know, you made it right with God and you turned from it and you sought to do your best. I'm not talking about it. I'm talking about the lifestyle where it defines you as a person, that you have, a, have a, just a, a reputation for wounding people with your words. And I'm not talking about all of society. It may be that one person. It may be your husband. It may be your wife. It may be your children. It may be your coworker. But it's even one person. It's a consistent lifestyle where you wound with your words. James would say, I can't even understand how this happens. Jesus would say, what comes out of the mouth is what's already in the heart. And Jesus would go on to say that, that our words validate whether or not we even know him. And so for those who, who wound with words, and, and you may know whether that's you or not, the uh, best thing you can do is to understand that relation between the words you speak and the condition of your heart. It's probably the best thing you can do is to give that thought, to give that serious consideration. In other words, based on the words of others, would people say that you know God or that you don't? And if there's any one person you think, well, I think most people here would know. Uh, the people in my Sunday school class that I teach, they would know I'm a Christian, you know, the people that hear me in the choir, yeah, they would know I'm a Christian. You know, the people at work, I carry my Bible. I mean, I pray sometimes and I'm eating my meal there in the break room. I mean, they would know I'm a Christian. But there is that one person, you know, my wife. You know, she probably wouldn't think I know God. You, know, you got issues. And your words are either going to build up or they're going to break down. James says, if you think you're righteous and religious, but you, you don't bridle your tongue, your religion's worthless. James says, I can't even comprehend, I can't even understand how this happens, speaking to another person who's a, a, a part of the body of Christ, another person made in the image of God, for that matter. I don't even see how it works. Jesus says, hey, whatever's in the heart is going to make its way out the mouth, so there's a bunch of junk coming out of the mouth. You need to check your heart. See, th- th- this is not fluffy stuff. This is big time. And so what can you do? What are some things that may be helpful for you in regards, if you're one who wounds, to help to get a rein on that. Number one, you can cultivate wisdom. Hopefully that simple truth that we just read out of Matthew is a kickstart for that. Cultivate wisdom. That, you know, I cannot continue to coast in this area. I have got to take steps to develop a walk with God that, that allows the Holy Spirit to be at such work in my life to where though I can't tame my tongue, I know that He can and I'm yielded to Him consistently every day of my life begin to cultivate wisdom we don't have time to do this but if you wanted to read through the rest of that passage in james chapter 3 that we focused on this morning if you wanted to read through that passage and just kind of see what else it has to say specifically what you'll find there is that in in chapter 4 as it begins to move through he's talking about developing that heart of wisdom but or or chapter verse 13 i'm sorry he begins to talk about developing that heart of wisdom 
And so if you win with words, one of the best things you can do is to cultivate wisdom in your life. Number two, you can begin to pray for self-control. Pray for God to supernaturally work in your life to where you have self-control. Listen to what it says in Psalm 141, verse 3. You might want to jot this down, and this would be a great verse to begin memorizing. It's short, it's simple, but it's powerful. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Why would the psalmist write this? Because he understood the power of his words. So far as to even say, set a guard, Lord, over my mouth. Just barricade my lips that I might not speak a word that would tear down and set it to build up. And then number three, what you can do is perhaps to create reminders for you. If this is a real issue for you, if this is something that you've caused such damage to your family, to your marriage, to coworkers, to friends, if you've lost friendships because of things you say, you just can't tame your tongue, and it's something that God has convicted you about, and you know it needs work, you know it needs help, cultivate wisdom, begin to do those things, develop that deep walk with God, but maybe practically you can just, just uh, create reminders for yourself. Here's an example. I, I've got a, uh, I put a rubber band around my wrist today. You know what, it just as a simple example, there are thousands of them that you can think of, whatever works for you. But if you have an issue with this, uh, uh, this is a simple reminder for you. And you start to, you know, you're starting to kind of feel that, that intensity build a little bit, and you're starting to get red-faced, and you're about to pop off and say something you don't need to say, just give that a little pop right there. That'll remind you. That'll remind you. It'll sting, and it'll remind you that what you're about to say may sting the other person, and not just sting them, but spread go beneath the surface and harm them as well. And little things like that can be simple and practical in nature. And I don't know what will work for you. It may be covering your refrigerator with, uh, with Bible verses. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend covering your windshield with Bible verses, you know, as you're driving to and from work if that's an issue. But uh, think of what can be helpful for you, practical things that keep you focused on the need to rein in your tongue so that the, the hurt, the stings, and the harm come to an end and that you begin to cultivate an environment of encouragement, of authenticity, and of righteousness rather than hurt and pain and brokenness. Twelfth century was marked by the holy wars, the crusades. It was a religious war, and I use that term uh, (laughs) broadly. Whenever the crusaders, in the midst of battle, would have especially difficult battles coming up. They would hire mercenaries to fight for their cause. Well, because it was a religious war, the crusaders would have to first baptize the mercenaries before they would allow them to go to battle. Interesting theology. Whenever they would take these mercenaries fighting for this religious cause and they would baptize them, it was customary for the soldiers, the, the warriors, as they were being baptized, to hold up out of the water their sword. And it wasn't because they valued their sword. It was symbolic in nature. It was that I'm being baptized, signifying my following of God. But this sword belongs to me. You know, for some here, perhaps this morning, you have a genuine walk with God. And you really, really, really love the Lord with all your heart. But there's that one part of you that has brought such devastation and such hurt and such harm to people that you love. You've begun to build even a reputation for your language, for the words that you speak, and for the way that you define the lives of others by that one small part of your life that still belongs to you. 
Christian, what's the best thing that you can do to apply this lesson, this message this morning? I think we've looked at some practical things, but the best thing that you can do is to understand that in and of yourself, you don't have the power to control even that, one of the smallest parts of your body. That it can only be controlled by the God who made it and the God who saved you. And so yield that to him. Allow him to do the work in you that would change you from the inside out. For others, the first decision for you to make is not to clean up language or to speak better to people. The first decision for you to make is to decide to give your life, every part of it, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved you so much, he defines who you are by his death in your place. But he's only yours and you're only his when you turn from sin and place your faith in Christ. And so this morning as we sing in just a moment, I'm going to give you the opportunity that if your desire is to give your life to Christ this morning, won't you slip out as we sing in just a moment and just come to me and say, Brooks, I want to give my life to Jesus today. And we'll have someone step out with you and walk you privately through that decision. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for the work that you desire to do in our lives. Lord, uh, I think probably in this church, 500 adults here perhaps today, two different services. I think it'd be safe to say that there'll be some devastation represented here this morning. Homes that have been just absolutely destroyed because of the words of one or both parts of that marriage. Children that have been shaped by the words of a parent. Students that are here that have been shaped by the words of another in their circle of friends or at school. Lord, our words carry much power. In fact, power of life and death. And so, Lord, help us to be mindful whether it's to create reminders for ourselves, certainly for us to pray for self-control in our lives, and for us to take inventory of the condition of our heart based on the words that we speak. Lord, help us to use our tongues, our speech, our language, our words to build and not destroy. But Father, we pray also for those that have been wounded through the years with the words of others. And Lord, to the point where they've defined themselves by what others think and not what you say. Lord, let them begin to replace those lies like as though picking the good out of the bad, Lord, over a period of time, just to pick out the lies and replace them with your truth. Lord, that they are valuable in your sight, so worthy and valuable that even Christ would die in their place. That Through Jesus, they're holy, they're blameless, they're complete. They're even perfect in their standing before you. And so, Lord, thank you for your truth. We pray today that we would apply it, that we'd live it, and that you'd get the glory through it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.